Okay, so I'm here with, with John Doyle. We're still both at the at KITP for the workshop on network architecture. This is Paul sure, the Convergence Science Network. And John, you you presented your work on on architectures as a control engineer. You, you looked at, at at architectures in particular focusing on single cellular organisms, right? So so, and that seems a bit a counterintuitive move for a control engineer. So why why did you move to the to biology? Well, I got interested in biology, you know, around ten years ago, or or ten or fifteen years ago. Um, I'd been working initially motivated, I'm pretty much a very much at the theoretical end, my PhD's in math, but I was early mostly in, uh, motivated by aerospace control problems because they were doing in you know, the 80s the most cutting edge things. But then in the 90s networks started coming, you know, we, we, the internet really grew to prominence, um, didn't really have a theory, so I got interested more in networks and uh, just kind of gravitated towards um, bacteria because I had uh, colleagues at Caltech who worked on it. It was kind of a convenient. Um, but also, um, I've found that they have, in nature, one of the most remarkable and evolvable architectures, the architecture of the bacterial biosphere. Um, for one thing, it evolved into us, uh, but it also continues to have tremendous evolvability and robustness. And so I want to understand what gave that biosphere, that robustness. And I think we've now found uh, deep principles that are very uh, consistent with what we're learning about how to build a technology network. So it was um, examples in addition to the internet of really sophisticated, evolvable networks that we could compare. But now before we go to the internet, when you talk about robustness, what's, what are these principles of robustness? that? that you see in these biological systems? Well, um, so one thing is they, uh, they, they get robustness by having um, a plug-and-play, sort of what we would in technology call a plug-and-play architecture. That is, on, on uh, almost every time scale you look, they can quickly adjust to, say, changing environments. And so uh, on very short time scales, they can very quickly uh, rearrange their protein networks to respond as they needed. But on longer time scales, they can uh, change their genomes uh, very rapidly. They can uh, swap genes. Uh, so they, the, bio, the bacterial biosphere as a whole almost acts as one large gene pool. So on long time scales, they can very quickly evolve their genome. And on short time scales, they're very quick in responding to the environment. And what's interesting is I think their architecture makes both of those better. And that's one of the things that, that I think has surprised the biologist a bit, is that the, that the proper architecture can facilitate both rapid robustness on short time scales and rapid evolvability on long time scales. But now in your... <clears throat> so this is a bit the phenomena, right? These are the phenomena we want to understand. But now in, in terms of principles, you, you, you talked about layering, you talked about constraints, um, and you talk about, let's say, feedback. So, so how does it now relate to these phenomena that we're trying to look at, right? Well, the way, we, the way in engineering uh, we think about, and mathematics, the way we think about describing architectures in terms of constraints. And so, um, 
and the, the IEEE transactions or, uh, paper uh, on architecture uh, takes that point of view, as does the recent PNAS paper aimed at neuroscientists, and it tries to explain how we think about constraints. And one of the places constraints come from is this, the, the behavior of the system as a whole is constrained by the environment it must act in, act in and the, the, if it's going to uh, survive and persist. Um, and then there's usually constraints on the components which come up from the bottom. What, 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 what can you build? What are the resources? What can you build it out of? Um, and then additionally, there are constraints that come out of theory in some sense. Um, I mean, theory reflects reality, but the idea is that much of, much of engineering theory is about the additional hard limits that come either out of limitations on computing, which is Turing, limitations on communication, which is Shannon, and what I talked about in this KTP lectures is the Bode mm -hmm. uh, limits on uh, robustness in feedback systems. Um, these aren't well known in the scientific community, um, but, and they're a little bit fragmented even within engineering, but we're trying to build unified theories now. But the final constraint then is the design choices that are made, either through evolution or through deliberate design. And, um, and Gerhardt and Kirshner, who are biologists, have a very nice phrase for what a good architecture is, is constraints that deconstrain. And you choose a few constraints, and, and it might be, for example, the use of ATP as an energy carrier, the use of NADH as a redox carrier, the codons. Um, in the internet, it would be the packet formats and the TCPIP protocol. Um, if those are chosen wisely, then they free you up to use that as a platform for both very robust networks and very evolvable networks. And that's where layering comes in, is because layering is, seems to be the strategy that both engineers and biology have adopted to make flexible, uh, robust, evolvable systems. And what layering is, is a particular way of structuring the chosen constraints. And so that's what we talked a lot about. It's not a simple topic. But um, it's familiar enough to people from neuroscience and from cell biology and from engineering that there is becoming, I'm hoping, a common language, which is what I'm trying to promote about what is layering. Mm -hmm. But then how do layers map to modules? Right? Because also in your analysis, you, you stress the notion of modules quite a bit. Yeah. So how should I see this relationship between layers and modules? So layering is, I think, the the highest level view of what modularity is. And I think it's the most uh, important aspect of modularity. Um, I think there's been a lot written in the scientific community lately about modularity that is, I think, uh, naive and, and not, not wrong so much as um, not the most important aspects of layering. And so the thing that people are probably most familiar with modularity is the laptop that they have, um, and they can, or they, you know, they download this podcast and it just runs immediately. And so the idea is that the kind of modularity it has is that you can download new software, you can download new podcasts, and they immediately work uh, largely independent of which computer you happen to have. Um, and you can you can go to the store or uh, order online uh, hardware that you just plug in, and what makes that possible is what's hidden, what you don't see, which is the operating systems and that, that they sit between all these applications and the hardware. 
and, uh, and allow you the modularity. And the idea is that the modularity looks so simple and so easy when it works. It usually either works perfectly or not at all. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's, it's the structure of, it's the layered structure that allows that to happen. And we believe that's the same thing in biology. It's what allows, uh, for horizontal gene transfer as a mechanism for, for, uh, bacteria to evolve rapidly, for example. Um, and that, so they have the same sort of plug and play modularity that our technologies have when they're good. But now does modularity always imply let's say, a static organization of, of a structure, or can you have, let's say, virtual modules that change if you want their boundaries and their interfaces to other modules? So how should I think about this? Well, I think, I think the constraints that deconstrain way of looking at this is that there's always different time scales for different aspects of the architecture. There's, there's usually things that are persistent on very long time scales. So an example of something that is persistent on very long time scales in biology would be the use of ATP as an energy carrier. It's both universal across all of biology and probably has been there for billions of years. Um, the, the, uh, the codon usage is nearly universal and has probably been there for also similar long times. So those are constraints that really persist for a long, long time. Um, what they facilitate, however, is tremendously dynamic uh, responses. And so by having a common energy carrier throughout the cell, individual modules don't have to worry about an energy source. Um, core metabolism makes sure that, that the ATP charge is maintained as constant as possible. And an enormous amount of sophisticated control goes on inside the cell or inside our bodies to maintain that energy charge. Um, and then what that allows you to do is, on, again, on every time scale, uh, adapt very dynamically to the challenges. Mm -hmm. So what you see is the combination of a permanent constraint that's fixed forever. But that choice, if done wisely, enables very, uh, very much dynamics. Mm -hmm. Now what happens is, on fast time scales, even what's a module is changing very rapidly. So, for example... Um, it, just in say in metabolism, uh, you'll, the, depending on what, uh, what biosynthetic pathways are needed, they may come and go uh, on demand. Um, and, and, what, what, and depending again on what's in the environment, what was a food source may go away and now all of a sudden that's a, say an amino acid that you have to start manufacturing. Again, mm -hmm. this is bacteria are the most plastic in this regard. We're not very flexible. Right. But at the same time, we can eat all sorts of things, mm -hmm. um, and so we're omnivores. And our ability to do that is, again, because we have this sort of front-end process that turns whatever we eat into a few basic building blocks from which we synthesize all of our tissues. Okay, but now, if you, if you describe it like this, <clears throat> coming from engineering, you seem to be implying that actually engineering also works according to these principles. Yes. Is that actually true for, for sort of... The, the larger systems that we have put together as humans? Well, the, one of the problems is the larger systems we've put together as humans are not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so they have design flaws. Mm -hmm. And one of the ironies is, uh, when I first started getting interested in biology, the biologists would tell me, oh, you know, you're going to see biology's kludgy, it's an accident, it's a tinker, evolution's a tinkerer. Um, that's very true. 
But in fact, you don't, you don't tend to see uh, the gross design flaws in biology that are all over in engineering. And the reason for that is that, that much of the core, uh, these core protocols in biology have had millions to billions of years to evolve. Um, and uh, sure, we have some funny aspects of it because we were built out of fish parts. And, um, and so building a human out of fish parts is going to have some problems. Um, but the, the biochemical layer is, seems to be spectacularly uh, well-designed from an engineering point of view. So I think, and so what the, what you, what's hard to do with any of these systems is to sort out what is a hard, necessary constraint and trade-off and, and what is a an accidental design flaw, either of evolution or of engineering. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you see both. Um, so the problem with engineering, though, is in our, at the big scale, we're profoundly unsustainable in our energy, transportation, waste, water, food, almost everything. Uh, and the more you learn about it, the more dis disturbing it is. The more I understand ecosystems and their interactions with our technologies, the more frightened I am. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think I'm... Uh, funny, I'm kind of a global warming skeptic. I think it's much worse than the scientists are telling us. I don't think they, I don't think they have the tools yet to do the sort of worst-case scenario analysis that we do in engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we take for granted that our planes rarely crash, and that's because engineers do that kind of worst-case analysis. So we do certain things very, very well in engineering. We've gotten to the point where we can build platforms like airplanes and vehicles that are very sophisticated and very robust. And, but we're not so good at the networks yet. Mm -hmm. um, and the internet was a spectacular innovation, but it now has a lot of recognizable design flaws. But we've built so much on top of it that it's hard to now change those. If you make a, if you make a mistake in a core protocol and then you build a lot on top of it, mm -hmm. it can be very hard to now change that. Right. So if ATP wasn't a good energy carrier, biology would have very little choice but to just stick with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, but now, so, so, but, but, but this seems to be also a conundrum a bit in your. Well, these ladies are getting a bit noisy, right? So maybe we should change change location. Okay. Um, because I have to filter all that stuff out later okay. again. Keep on going here. Um, so because what now? What? To bring up now is that in in your so the one that now we see if you want a bit of a of a contrast here right between your analysis of of life of biology biological systems and the success of this framework you you see in in nature in actually the development of these large integrated systems like like internet right because like like you said earlier. Um, if you look at how internet has been put together, it's one one big kludge, right? It's not really but it was structured. But it was based on um, a few very profound and visionary insights. Mm -hmm. and but it's not necessarily from, from control engineering in any way. No, no. In fact, it was operating systems uh, in engineers. Right. And, um, and they... Now... They knew elementary control theory and made quite a bit of use of it at a time, and, and they did it at a time when uh, communication theory was almost entirely dominated by information theory. And so, 
decades ago, there was a major battle between sort of the information theorists and the operating systems people uh, over uh, how to build these networks. And, um, and for almost accidental reasons in the U.S., the OS system people won, and they built the Internet. And um, now what's happened in the last 10 to 15 years is we really now have a much more integrated theory that includes information and control theory and greatly explains both the successes and the flaws in the current Internet architecture. Um, and one of the big challenges now is to use those insights to build uh, a next generation. Mm -hmm. but, that, but the Internet's a good example of a situation where the really brilliant engineers are always way out ahead of any of the theoretical understanding. And so we're always playing catch-up with the best. And it's mm -hmm. the same way, I think, in medicine. I think the best doctors are always making leaps way out ahead of any scientific basis. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, and, and I think the scientific community has in some ways quit doing this, is trying to come back and help the doctors flesh out the details. I think, right. I think the doctors have, for a few decades, really been on their own mm -hmm. as the scientific community uh, pursued uh, genomics as the answer to everything. Right, but the only problem is, of course, that with respect to internet, we might be already so much committed into one certain mm -hmm. way of structuring the system that we have no chance ever to, to re-engineer and redeploy anything. That's a big worry. Yeah, that's a big worry. And so um, I'm a little less concerned about that than I was uh, from a technical point of view, in the sense that I think what the, the architectures that I think are the most appealing that are being proposed actually have the internet as kind of a lousy special case. Mm -hmm. So I think it could be organically grown around it, a new, a new architecture. And then it's a little bit like a city. You can, you could, uh, sort of leave the old parts as a kind of scruffy old neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's possible. Um, I think the challenge is going to be probably in these big systems not technological, but the interplay between technology, markets, and policy. Mm -hmm. And I think if there's a system that we uh, understand most poorly, it's the interplay between technology and policy and markets. And um, uh, right now, extremely ideologically driven, mm -hmm. not the least bit uh, rigorous. Right. Um, and I would say of the fields that I've looked at, I think the area of of um, economics and finance and markets in that world is among the most ideological driven of any. And mm -hmm. so the problems ultimately there may not be just purely technological. Right. But, but not to get back to the, get back to the biology. Yeah. Yeah. And the first architecture, right? So, and so sometimes also in the discussions here in, in this, in this uh, workshop, we, we want to get to some notions, let's say, brain architecture, right? Yes. But then, Let's first try to understand what we mean with architecture. And you have used this this, this analogy with, let's say, a garment to, 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 to illustrate how you think about architecture. Could you maybe explain? Yeah, I've been trying to look for um, a, an example of an architecture uh, that would be so simple you could explain, explain it to a school child, right? Um, because I think we need these concrete metaphors. And, of course, anything that simple is dangerous because it can't have many of the important features that we care about. But the reason I picked on clothing is everybody knows about clothing. 
And the thing about clothing is that it shows two very different kind of layers. And the PNAS paper that's uh, now online and soon to be in print is, uh, discusses that. And the idea is that the most familiar one is sort of inner to outer wear. So you have an inner layer that's close to the skin. And I'm imagining clothing in a cold environment. We're, we're, a, we're naturally adapted to live in a very hot environment and don't really even need clothing in a hot environment. But where we really need clothing is harsh, cold environments. And so in those environments, we often have some, an inner layer that's close to the skin. And then you have an outer layer that protects you against this, the weather from the outside, a wet, cold wind. And then a middle layer that provides warmth. And what's interesting about this view of layering is it's so simple, anybody can understand it. What you have is three very different kinds of layers that combine synergistically to create a hole that is, feels good to the skin, protective of the outside, and as warm as necessary. Mm-hmm. And tremendous plug-and-play modularity. You can swap in uh, different parts of the garments. Um, but it also shows another point, which is enormously confusing within the scientific community, not in engineering. But most combinations of garments do not produce functional outfits. They really, while there's enormous variability in what you can do, there's still pretty strict rules in what can go where, or they don't work at all. Mm-hmm. So you can't, you can't, make underwear outerwear, you can't make socks into hats, you can't, you know, for the most part. So, mm-hmm. so that's one way of looking at the layering. And, but another is the composition of fiber, which is then um, spun into yarn, which is then knit or woven into cloth, which is then sewn into garments. A whole other dimension of layering, very different than the first, but again has... Uh, illustrates properties both of biology and technology. And so in that PNS paper, I try to flesh out that example as one that I think would help both engineers and neuroscientists talk to each other um, because it's a it's such a simple example. Now the danger is it's too simple. It doesn't have dynamics. Um, the, the these compositional forms are very, very simple. The way Clothing just sits on top of, you know, one layer of clothing sits on top of another. Doesn't really, doesn't really lock in like you would in, a, in, in many other systems. There's a lot of things that are wrong with the thing, but it gets a starting point. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that's good, right? So if we have layers and then we have also different, let's say, processes that give rise to the key properties of these layers. Yeah. But now if I would like to have, let's say, a more parametric description of such an architect, what would be the key, let's say, parameters that that I should worry about? Well, in this, I mean, again, using this, stretching this probably to yeah. the point where it will break, um, there is, there is the rules by which, the constraints by which you can assemble. So, like I said, most, most combinations of garments do not produce a functional outfit. And there's a few rules that you can write down, uh, in principle anyway. And we certainly learn them, um, and children learn them, um, as to what make a functional garment. But the interesting thing is, once the, once the garments are selected, 